It is time for By All Means, Season 2, Episode 19, right here on Western Reserve Radio. I am your host, Mark Means, Dave Ferris, my co-host, back at our Western Reserve Studios in Struthers. The show is always presented by Mill Creek Golf Course. Visit MillCreekMetroParks.org for more information and to book your tee time today. Find the show on Facebook. Just look for Western Reserve Radio on Twitter at Western Reserve Radio. Download the Live 365 or TuneIn app or just go to WesternReserveRadio.com. We teased it last week. It has finally come. It is the week that we talk to the legendary Hall of Fame broadcaster, Doc Emmerich. We'll hear all about his career and uh, everything he has done and what he is currently doing uh, now that he is retired from the NBC National Game of the Week. And with further, uh, no further ado, let's check in with that interview we recorded with the legendary Doc Emmerich. It's my pleasure to have on the phone Doc Emmerich, the Hall of Fame hockey announcer. And uh, Doc, let's jump right in. And I've always been curious. I've been reading your book. How does a young man from LaFontaine, Indiana, become a Pittsburgh Pirates fan? Uh, it has to do with 50,000 watts of KDKA. Uh, my brother and I were both baseball fans, and we would listen to games at night because uh, the distant stations then, at that time, the AM radio stations, would carry the Major League Baseball teams. That has changed to some extent now where the 50,000 waters have other things to do at night. But back then, uh, they would carry uh, the Cubs, the Cardinals, the Pirates, the Phillies uh, were almost all on, on major carriers. And so even though we couldn't hear them during the day, the night games we could. And in the late 1950s, the Pirates actually became credible. And they had an exciting announcer named Bob Prince. And the combination of his delivery and uh, the fact that the team was good made me a fan and I've been that ever since um, it's not been a good thing to be the last 30 years mostly but uh, I don't care when you make a decision on a team you stick with it since you retired in October of 2020 how closely do you still follow the National Hockey League oh I watch games almost every night um, because uh, that's uh, part of my life too uh, from the time I saw my first game live 61 years ago uh, I've been a fan of the sport and that hasn't changed even though I'm not calling games anymore. I watch the games a little differently now than I did then in that before when I would watch a game I would be looking at sleeve numbers and wanting to make sure that I knew who I was seeing out there because I would be called upon to call a game in the near future involving that player. Now I just watch a little more casually and I watch it in a different way where I'm trying to pick up the trailer on a on a three on two break where there's somebody coming up as the fourth player uh, I'm appreciating it more as a fan might rather than uh, as a professional who would have to identify players. When you're watching that game do you hear yourself calling the game in your mind or are you able to just watch it as a fan? No I would that, I would certainly do that uh, in the earlier years Mark uh, that was part of what you did and sometimes with the sound down you would, you would in your mind be calling the game not out loud but in your mind you would but not anymore no I, I have the sound up and I appreciate the guys that do the work now uh, but no the, that that part has changed as well but it is uh, with great appreciation I see what the guys do not only the announcers but also the players so we've had wonderful playoffs I mean single double triple overtime games it's been fantastic 
do you think the National Hockey League is in a better place now than when you began your career as a broadcaster? Yes, I think so. Um, there will always be arguments about that among players of that time. Uh, the game was certainly passionately played then, as it is now, uh, but it was a different sport. Uh, those players of that era will tell you that it is slower uh, at that time than it is now, but it was also played with a lot of fire and with a lot of sacrifice. And Barry Trotz, who's now coaching the New York Islanders, uh, back when he was coaching Nashville, uh, went into some discourse with me at one time about courage and about the kind of courage that was required to play the game in the 70s and 80s compared to the courage that's required to play the game now. And it's a different kind. Um, the, the courage now is to drive to the net. It's to block shots. It's to go into the corners where you know you're going to be hit. Back then, the courage was to get through the night because there were far more fights and um, the players weren't nearly as large then. They didn't go nearly as fast. But what was required was to survive the night and to skate a wing or play defense knowing that there was a lot of hitting and there was going to be some fighting too. So it still is a game that requires courage and it requires dedication. And you never see it more than you do in the Stanley Cup playoff time because there's not a lot of money in it compared to the regular season for the players. But that's not why they play this hard. They play this hard at this time of year to get their name on the trophy and because they are team players. Is it more difficult for you to prepare for a Stanley Cup playoff, say a, a Game 7, or when you had the opportunity to call gold medal finals in the Olympics? Well, it's a lot the same. And uh, Sam Flood, who for many years was our executive producer at NBC and has now moved up the ranks and still oversees the hockey part, uh, would always talk to us at uh, those times whenever we had, uh, for example, gold medal games or seventh games of playoffs or winter classics and would always encourage us to use broader strokes because the audience would be much wider. And rather than to talk so much in the hockey vernacular at those times, but rather to widen our uh, viewership to, um, to at least not necessarily discuss offside and icing, but uh, not to use a lot of coach speak as we might on a Wednesday night game in January, uh, but to be a little more definitive so that we didn't leave people that might be fascinated by the speed of the sport and might not normally see it, uh, not to leave them behind. So that is probably your answer is that, yes, you prepare the same way for a Stanley Cup seventh game as you would for a gold medal game, but maybe a game four or a game three that is not a deciding game in a Stanley Cup series might be more of your normal preparation. And for me, um, that was usually the night before for four hours going over a lot of the statistics and entering those on my card and some biographical information. Then at the morning skate, which was 10.30 and 11.30, the home team and the visitor, uh, watching them on the ice, um, getting a chance to chat with two or three players and the coaches after. This was pre-pandemic when it wasn't all um, virtual. And then entering any notes from that that were fresh, that were not a part of the Internet, because you want fresh material that fans that are really fans haven't read already on the Internet from uh from that morning and 
and uh, entering those on your card in the early afternoon and then doing the game that night. And so the process of preparing uh, for a normal game for me was usually four hours the night before and four hours uh, the morning and early afternoon of the game. And, uh, and then there was the game. And I never minded. I enjoyed preparation. I enjoyed research and uh, enjoyed talking to the players and coaches a lot. And that's probably the greatest thing that I miss about not doing the games anymore were the conversations that you would get and what you would learn from chats with players and coaches. I've been reading your book, and one of the things you talked about, you called you called it guts broadcasting. Can you kind of go a little more in depth about that? As a broadcaster, I found that really interesting. Well, the the phrase came from uh, from a lot of other people that I was involved with at one time, but uh, probably the greatest example of that was uh, one night in Des Moines when I was in the IHL. There was a wedding at Center Ice, and it was supposed to take ten minutes uh, but it wound up because of the aftermath where where the fans uh, not having rice to throw to the happy couple as they marched off the ice they threw everything that wasn't nailed down onto the ice and it took 45 minutes for the ceremony plus getting all the debris off the ice and getting it resurfaced for the next period so uh, working alone and the five minute newscast back from the station that was over uh, you don't send it back to the station for them to play music you uh, you're involved in a hockey broadcast, and even though you're working alone, uh, you you use the time, and so that was where that phrase I thought was probably best used in my case uh, was getting through that night. It was December 14th, 1973, a long time ago. When writing your book, you you went over so many mem- memories so vividly. Are there a few that really stand out to you that you mentioned in the book that were highlights uh, of your unbelievable career? Oh, you know, some, uh, and for that reason, they are in there. And others are just probably in the realm of atmospheres and things like that that you remember. You know, a lot of times it is the atmosphere that you see inside an arena. Um, the Forum in Montreal, which uh, which closed uh, like a lot of arenas in the 1990s, uh, when we had a lot of arena building in North America, more so in the United States than in Canada. But you, I remember working games there, and uh, I would be in the arena for a 7 o'clock game. I would be in the arena at 4.30 or 5. And they would open the gates at... Uh, I think it was at five o'clock and the first people in that would go through the turnstiles were those who um, who had the standing room tickets they would they would uh, general admission and so first come first serve and as when the doors would open they would go through the turnstiles running to those spots and screaming as they ran and so you would remember that you knew that the doors were open when you heard the screaming and it was a scream of joy because it was so hard to get Montreal tickets anyway and not only did they have them they didn't have the best seats in the house they had standing room and they're going to stand all night but they were just thrilled to be there and the energy inside not only the forum but also inside Bell Center today where they uh, of course today there aren't any fans in the stands for this series with Toronto that's going on but normally it's 21,273 all the seats are full and there's an electricity about a game in Montreal that 
to me, although there are raucous places and there are energetic places all across the NHL, that one to me is always the most electric. As we wrap up our conversation, I know you're, you're watching games and paying attention to the National Hockey League, but what else is Doc Emmerich doing now that he's put the headset down? Um, in, involved in um, video essays, and um, I agreed to do some for NBC, and they are fun to do. They do involve some time. I have eight finished. Uh, they have all aired, and I have two more to go, and one will run at the very end of the last telecast, uh, and another one uh, will be going sometime during the Stanley Cup Finals. So I enjoy writing, and I'm in the midst of, of uh, doing the, the first draft of the scripting of those two items this week. Uh, each one requires about two weeks. It's not intense. It's not like I've got to get up at 8 o'clock and work on this piece, uh, but it does require probably consistency in, in uh, staying with it. We appreciate a couple minutes of your time. It's been a pleasure to listen to you call games and just have a few minutes today to speak to you, and thank you very much for that. Mark, thank you for your commitment to Youngstown Hockey and to your, uh, to your career, and I wish you all the best as you embark on it. I envy you just starting out like this because I remember how I was and how exciting every day was and just getting a chance to be around hockey players and around the rink. And so I wish you well as you embark on it. Good luck to you. My recently conducted interview with the legendary Hall of Fame broadcaster Doc Emmerich that uh, uh, we were able to get just before the recently passed holiday weekend. And that interview, I will tell you, it's one of those where I knew it was coming for quite a while. I had been exchanging correspondence with Doc for a few months before we were able to actually come to a specific day to be able to record that interview. And, uh, you know, I've had a chance to interview a lot of people over the last past 20 years, but uh, always the ones that intrigue me are having the opportunity to talk to, you know, the late Joe Tate or somebody like Doc Emmerich or, you know, Tom Hamilton or different announcers that I've had a chance to meet in my career. And all the interviews are great. And, you know, there's been Super Bowl champions before there's been, you know, college national champions uh, in my career that I've had a chance to talk to. And I have been reading uh, Doc's book for the last seven weeks leading up to that interview and uh, it is an, uh, is a special opportunity when you get a chance to talk to in my opinion and several other people's opinions the greatest hockey announcer of all time and that is exactly exactly what doc is and i know he's enjoying retirement but i will tell you the sports miss him and the fans miss him, and he's done a lot before. He's a huge Pirates fan. He's been on Pirates broadcasts on radio and TV over the years. Uh, he has called NFL football games, which he talks about in, in his book before. So he's not just a hockey announcer. He's somebody that's done a lot of things in his career. Uh, it absolutely was my pleasure to have a few minutes to talk to him. He was talking with several different outlets around the country when we did the interview. So uh, he, I love that he makes time for people to you know do those types of interviews, especially at this time of year when we are in the Stanley Cup playoffs. 
and uh, just wish the Penguins were still playing for us to have the opportunity to talk about that today. So again, a huge, huge honor to be able to talk to someone like Doc Emmerich, even if it was only for about 13 minutes when we spoke. Uh, but I enjoyed every minute of it. And if you are a Penguins fan, if you're a hockey fan, if you're an announcing fan, I absolutely recommend you go out and get Doc's book. From an announcer's perspective, it is one of my absolute favorites. And if you are a fan of Doc Emmerich, you can hear his voice in your mind reading that book. We'll be right back. By all means, presented by Mill Creek Golf Course. Visit MillCreekMetroParks.org for more information. Time for What's Trending with Mark and Dave. And Dave, we have known each other, as I've said many a times on this show, a long time. Yeah, we want to go back how far. (laughs) You've been around me when I've done a lot of different interviews. And I've interviewed a lot of different people, you know, World Series champions, very successful athletes. And, you know, uh, a lot of different announcers. And that interview was one I don't know if I've been more prepared for an interview that I've ever done as I was going into that one. I also don't know if I had been more nervous for an interview that I was going into that one. Yeah, you didn't sound like it, though. You, you sounded professional. You were right to the point. The questions were great. His answers were phenomenal. I mean, it probably could have went on for an hour or so if he had the time. So it was actually really good. You know, using the word actually makes me wonder if you didn't think it was going to be good. But anyway, <laughs> I heard that somewhere before. Yeah. But let me tell you this much. You know, I, uh, I enjoyed every minute talking to him. I had seven questions written out ahead of time. And you I probably went through him. that seven in like five seconds. You know what? I asked I asked all seven of those questions and then I added one more in the middle of the interview because you know I knew my hope was in that interview that I would get to the point where I would ask him a question that he would turn into a story because if you listen to him call games he tells you a story while he's calling the games. He's kind of got, you know, two different things going on and I think all the great announcers at that level do that. And, um, you know, he remarks about, you know, that reminded me of when I talked to a coach a few years ago. And in my mind, I'm like, okay, check. I've accomplished my goal for this interview and, uh, you know, enjoyed every minute of, as I've said several times, it'll be up on the podcast uh, sometime tonight. uh, And uh, we'll let you know how you can find that later. Okay, a couple things for you, Dave. We are under 100 days till the first Ohio State football game of the year. Exactly 93. You know me. I'm all about the exacts. Will will the shoe be full? That shoe will be over full. When they play September 11th against the Oregon Ducks. Yes. Yes. They will be at capacity. They've already opened up Indians games are going to be full capacity. Starting tomorrow. The scrappers can now be full capacity. So there's no reason why Ohio State will not be at full capacity. Yeah, the Buckeyes, you mentioned, they're 93 days away from they open on a Thursday night against the Gophers, against our our buddy Brian's team at 8 o'clock on Fox. They follow that up with the home game at noon against the Oregon Ducks. The following week, they host the Tulsa Golden Hurricane at 3.30 FS1. The next three games do not have kickoff times yet. September 25th at home against Akron. October 2nd 
at Rutgers to take on the Scarlet Knights. I'll bet you that game is probably noon. October 9th, noon, when they are at home against the Maryland Terrapins. They then have a week off before what I think will be a bigger game than most people think when they travel to Indiana on October 23rd. Kickoff time to be announced. Uh, October 30th, they round out the month when they host Penn State with no kickoff time announced. They head to Nebraska on November 6th. They are at home for Purdue on November 13th. They go to Michigan State on November 20th. And then they wrap things up with that team up north up north for a noon kickoff at Ann Arbor at the Big House. So it is an interesting schedule. And like always, as an Ohio State fan, you they almost force you to be flexible because sometimes you don't know the kickoff time on Monday for a game you have tickets for that's six days later. Right. And here's my question. November 27th, are we going to hear the Ohio State chant on all four sides of that field? Like we did two years ago. You know what? Yeah, that was, uh, you know, if you think about it, when we were there, that was Justin Fields' first game as a, as a Buckeye quarterback. And uh, this fall, he's going to be an NFL quarterback. Right. Yep, it's been a while. And that first game, I believe we went, uh, was Northwestern, was the opening game of the season that year. And it just so happens that that was a Saturday that neither one of us had anything else going on. So that was fun. Um, Which, unfortunately for me, I can't speak for you, but unfortunately for me, uh, all my commitments lock out going to a Buckeyes game this fall. So maybe next year. Yeah, unfortunately, I will be in the Sunshine State come September 2nd. So I will not. Well, no, September 2nd. That's a Thursday. Mm -hmm. So, no, I will still be here in Youngstown on Thursday, but that's in Minnesota. But by the 11th, I will be in the Sunshine State for a week. Weird opening so, up on a Thursday. I do not like it. I no, do not think big boy football is played on Thursdays, to be quite honest with you. I don't you. think big boy football should be on Thursdays, and I also don't think the Ohio State-Michigan game should be at noon either. That, oh, that, it's almost always that needs, been noon. I know, but it's just wrong. It's one of the biggest games of the year. It's one of the biggest games that's ever televised On with the – the following that both of these teams have, there's no reason why it should not be a primetime game. I will give you the perfect reason why it should not be. And that is? I can't wait till 8 o'clock that day to watch that game happen. Noon is perfect. I don't think I could add another eight hours of stress to that day. I want it over. If they could play it at 10 a.m., I'd be happy with 10 a.m. Let's get it on and get it over with. You're just worried about running out of Ohio State shirts that week, and if you get one dirty, you might not <laughs> have another one to wear by 8 o'clock. I do that. So, so let's jump. Let me ask you some more questions here. we got a couple minutes left. Yep, let's go for it. Is it time to give long-term extensions, not picking up their options, but are you ready? Have you seen enough to give both Mayfield and Nick Chubb long-term contract extensions? I say let's wait till week eight. I really think we should give them half the season first. Let's wait till week eight and see what they look like coming into this season. If by week eight everything's looking good, I say go for it. By the end of the year, let's give them on those long-term contracts. Let's lock them down. You know what? I agree with you in part because if you're going to give them long-term, either do it now or do it in March. 
I wouldn't be negotiating with players and their agents in the middle of the season. I think a lot of them consider that to be a distraction. So I would, if you're going to do it, I'd wait till the year's over or I'd do it now. Well, it's a distraction when you're doing it like the last couple of weeks of the season when everybody's gearing for playoffs. But if they start week seven, week eight, by week 10, usually you, you're, you've got it hammered out pretty good. So I don't see a reason why not to do it in the middle of the season, but that's my opinion. Other thing, what about all these injuries piling up for the Indians? I'll tell you, this is how much I'm concerned about the injuries. If I read a tweet or a press release or something that says, you know, the Indians have called up fill-in-the-blank name, they're getting to the names I've never heard of. And I feel, I mean, I wouldn't say I'm an expert on the Indians, but I, I think I know the farm system well. I know the organization well. And if you're getting to the point where you're calling up a player that I have to, you know, look up online because I don't know much about their background, we're getting a little deep into the farm system. We've already had 100 plus innings pitched this year by rookies. With that said, they're still only, what, like three and a half games out of first place? So they're, they're playing okay baseball right now with all the injuries that they are dealing with. Yeah, just should, well, that just goes to show you how deep our farm system is with the pitching. I mean, being three and a half games back is doable, but when you have players that are taking off shirts and breaking thumbs, uh, yeah. you, you, you got to start – Somebody's got to stop and think, okay, how, how are we going to start preventing some of these injuries? Are we not stretching properly? I, are, what, are, what aren't we doing to prevent getting hurt? The club needs to take all the chairs in the clubhouse. When the team is coming back, if it was a difficult performance or a, a tough loss, take all the chairs and fold them up. Oh, just take them out of the locker room completely. <laughs> Give them a pillow and tell them they can sit on the floor. Yeah, everybody in a circle and talk about what you did wrong that night. Right, because otherwise, yeah. And if you're that frustrated, beat the pillow, not the chair. Right. So. I mean, it was you're talking about Zach Plezak injuring his thumb, fracturing his thumb, uh, taking off his undershirt under his jersey after having a rough outing. According to the reports, he banged that thumb into the chair next to his locker. And that's why he's going to be out for about a month. And you're, you're hearing names like uh, Eli Morgan, who was called up to pitch in that windstorm they had over the weekend uh, against the Blue Jays and really didn't get a fair shake of seeing just how talented that young guy is because the weather played havoc on any ball hit into the outfield and helped a few of them go over the wall. Oh, sure. There was 25 to 35 mile per hour winds, and those were sustained winds. Those weren't even the wind gusts that they were getting that were up words of 40 so yeah when that ball went it just carried the reason why plus the rain the game on saturday was canceled and i mean you talk about a rough holiday weekend for the indians a, a, a double header on sunday and then follow that back up with another double header on monday so you know four games in two days they have to play uh, Chicago tonight, 6.05 uh, up at the uh, Progressive Field. They have, a, I believe, a 105 afternoon game tomorrow, and uh, then they actually get Thursday off. And you know what? I think they've earned it. Well, I actually think they're going to end up with Wednesday off too because the weather in Cleveland right now does right. not look favorable. Yeah, does not look favorable to doing anything in outdoors in Cleveland tomorrow. So we'll see what happens with that. But, 
Yeah, they, they definitely need some time off. They need to get these arms rested because you figure you've already gone through uh, five pitchers by the end of tonight, at least starting pitchers by the end of tonight. So, yeah, your rotation's really going to be lacking come you're, Wednesday and Thursday. You're really, really hoping for a quality performance out of Shane Bieber tonight that uh, will help the rotation. And, and then you're looking at you know Morgan coming back on Wednesday if they play. We are going to take a timeout here on a by all means. Hopefully, Wes Euler has calmed down since his Penguins our Penguins as well were eliminated from the NHL playoffs last week. We'll talk to him. We'll ask him the hard-hitting questions about the future of the franchise of the Pittsburgh Penguins right after this. Episode 19 brought to you by Mill Creek Golf Course. Make sure to go to milkcreekmetroparks.org for more information. On the phone is our Penguins insider, Wes Euler, ESPN Radio 970 in Pittsburgh. And let's begin with the most important question. Have you relaxed since the team was eliminated last week yet, Mr. Euler? <laughs> you know, Mark, that's a good question. Um, I've been doing this balancing act, right, where – I mean, my goodness, man, the team's won five Stanley Cups in the 30 years that I've been alive. They've been to a sixth final. They've been to 15 straight playoff appearances. They've had how many MVPs and, and Art Ross Trophy winners. Um, and, and, you know, the 16 and the 17 titles, obviously not to mention 09. This era has given us everything. The Penguins are still the most accomplished team of this era. I think I could say all that, though, right, Mark, and say that, man, that was still disappointing. Um, I, I, I did not think that the Penguins were as loaded as the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Colorado Avalanche and some of the other teams coming into the playoffs, but I didn't think they'd be one and done either, and I didn't think they'd be one and done in a series where, man, it, just leaving us with a ton of questions about the future. Well, yeah, and the, the huge question about the future for me is, and I know you know this number already, the Penguins have won three of their last 19 postseason games and two of those were this year right and and i think with that mark right when you when you kind of just look at the six games against the islanders it would be very easy to say you know what we had a good team we won the division but we kind of we ran into a team in the islanders that's just built for these tight games in the playoffs and our goaltender fell apart i think in a in a you know in a quick just six game snapshot that would be easy to say but you're absolutely right if you start to look back over the last three seasons you get swept by the islanders in 19 you get humbled by the Habs in the bubble where you just win one game in a, in a, in a best of five series and then this season uh two wins so yeah you mentioned it your last three playoff outings you've only had three wins in total that makes it a lot harder i think mark to just blame everything on jari obviously if I'm making a list of the reasons why the Penguins' season ended before the month of June, Tristan Jari is number one on my list. But I also think that you got to look at the bigger picture, like you mentioned as well, too. You look at it, yeah. I mean, Jari did not have a good playoff. I, I sent you many angry attacks during those games. <laughs> and you throw in the fact that you lost four games to a rookie goaltender playing in his first Four career playoff games. Yeah, it, it's difficult. I think especially when you when you see right what the Islanders did too, and going from Varlamov to Sorokin. Now Sorokin does deserve a little credit. He played in a lot of KHL playoff games uh, before he came to the National Hockey League. I don't think that that's 
anything to sneeze at, but it was his first time in the Stanley Cup playoffs. He also didn't start game one. They went with Varlamov. It, it, it certainly does, Mark. It, it, it's just frustrating. It, it feels like a team in the Islanders that, man, they just their margins for error are so slim. Everybody knows that, but they're so comfortable with that. And they just have historically been a house of horrors for the Penguins in the postseason, right? I mean, Penguins-Islanders in the 53-year history of both franchises, they've met six times in the postseason. The Islanders have won five of those six series. Just a lot of a lot of little things, I think, adding up to, along with the performance of Tristan Jari, uh, to just a series that's weird, right? Because it did go six games, and game five in double overtime, if that goes differently, uh, we could certainly be singing a different tune. But in a weird way, it also feels like, Mark, man, the Penguins just, even though it did go six games, it, it could have been, if the Islanders would have had Sorokin in net the whole time, you know, that's a popular thing. People say, uh, if they would have just gotten average goaltending from Jari, the Penguins would have won that series in five games. Okay, maybe. But if the Islanders start Sorokin for every game as well, too, maybe the Islanders win that series in five games as well. It's just, again, Mark, uh, a gut punch of a loss and, and one that leaves you with a ton of questions here in the offseason. And, and I've got some for you about that. Going all the way back to, to the decision to not protect Marc-Andre Fleury in the expansion draft and what he's accomplished since he's gone on to Vegas. And I know, you know he was due a big contract. They didn't really want to give it to him. Matt Murray had proven himself by you know winning some cups and being a big factor all the way to you know giving Jaria a contract extension. Are they making bad decisions with goalies lately? Uh, no, I don't think so. Now, if, if you want to talk Matt Murray versus Tristan Jari, I think that's more of a conversation. But the flurry thing, I, I don't buy that, Mark. I know that that's um, low-hanging fruit at this time for a lot of people. And I don't mean you specifically, but that's a real conversation that a lot of people are having. People forget, look, Tristan Jari's save percentage this year was better than Flurry's was in the playoffs for the Penguins in 2012 and 2013. Okay, people forget last year when Vegas was going on a run in the playoffs, Flurry was sat on the bench and it was Robin Leonard who was in the cage for Vegas. Listen, Mark Andre Flurry is a phenomenal goaltender. He's third all time in wins. He's going to be a future Hall of Famer, and he was just nominated for the he's a finalist for the Vesna Trophy, top three for the first time in his career. So I don't want to make it like Mark Andre Flurry. He's the last guy that I want to take shots at, Mark. But it, it's so to me that is just that's such cheap, low-hanging fruit for the fans that are doing that. Flurry stunk worse than Jari in 12 and 13. Flurry last year was on the bench when his team was playing in the playoffs. Would he have maybe been great this year? Possibly, yeah. And maybe the Penguins go on a run. But I think that that's just that's just a, a hyperbolic, easy thing to do as a sports fan and ignore. All the other previous history was flurry and just focus on the last couple months. Wes Euler, ESPN Radio 970 in Pittsburgh. So here's the, the hard-hitting questions, too. And I know I may bother a few Penguins fans. Geno's 34, Crosby's 33. Is it time to move on from one of them or both of them before next year? Man, so this is, this is kind of the – this is a tough one because – we all know in the NHL, when you try and do the Philadelphia Flyers thing, right, Mark? When you try and rebuild without actually committing to a rebuild. When you say, yeah, we're going to rebuild, but you keep Claude Giroux and you keep Voracek and, and you don't get rid of Wayne Simmons until two years after he's passed his prime, right? All you're doing is just fence-sitting, and, and you're not getting any better in the future. You're just kind of treading water, and maybe you'll win a playoff series. That is the danger that the Penguins – 
face themselves looking at here if they do decide to keep the core together and ride this thing out. Now, again, they're the most accomplished core of this era. The only other team of this era of the last 15 years that can stand up and hold a candle next to these Penguins are the Chicago Blackhawks. But my goodness, Mark, look at how they've fallen off a cliff since 2015. They haven't won a playoff series in five years. They've missed the playoffs three times in five years. I don't think it's going to be that sharp, that steep of a decline for the Penguins. But it is certainly a fair question to ask. This will be, obviously, the last summer you're going to get anything substantial for Evgeny Malkin. Maybe the return won't even be great now. Maybe the return would be more so just the cap space and the flexibility that you would have there in that regard. But those guys, you mentioned their age, they're going to be a year older by the time the season starts next year, too. So you're not going to get a ton of return for them. So that, to me, is the biggest question. Sidney Crosby isn't going anywhere unless he hands in a trade request one day or – you know, lets his contract play out and says, I just don't want to be here anymore. I'm going to go somewhere else. He's going to be a Pittsburgh Penguin. Unless he, he doesn't re-sign his contract in four years or unless he requests a trade, I don't see either of those things happening or at least something that we don't have to worry about for another four or five years down the line. If it's going to be a big shakeup, Mark, right, it feels like there's a short list of guys, and it's maybe Evgeny Malkin, Jake Gensel, I guess you could argue Brian Rust in that conversation, too. But, again, from a salary cap standpoint, Rust is a bargain contract. Uh, guys like Gensel, guys like Gino, what kind of return could you get for them? Uh, what kind of work could you do in free agency with the cap space, the cap relief? Those are all fair questions. And, and I do think, Mark, I don't think we'll have to wait a ton of time to know the answer. I, I think if, if they're going to keep the big three together, I think we'll know that soon. If they are shopping Gino, if they're shopping Latang, I don't think that that'll stay in the dark very, very much longer either. I think Hexall and Burke will be very clear and straightforward with how they see this team, how they view the window, if it's still open, if it's maybe one more year, if they think it's closed and it's time to move on. I don't think we'll be doing too much guessing there. I think once this thing, you know, once the season ends here about a month from now and everything kind of opens up, um, I don't think we'll have to wait long to get our answer to see how management really feels about this team and about their current core and how that relates to potentially winning another Stanley Cup. Only got a couple minutes left with you, Wes, but the question is you look at this team and there's not a lot of future contributors in the minors. They've dealt away a lot of draft picks, so they haven't had a lot of draft picks. If they're going to get better and younger, their only option is through free agency and trade. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I do, Mark, I do think we will see a substantial trade. I, If I'm predicting right now, I think the big three are back. Malkin only has one year left on his deal. Latang only has one year left on his deal. Again, with their age, I, I think that the Penguins will look at that and they'll say, look, those guys are going to represent more value to us on the roster than they will if we trade them because we're just not going to get a ton back, certainly something that's not going to help us right now. What I think is that Hexall and Burke are going to look at it and they're going to say, okay, Crosby, Malkin, uh, Jeff Carter, who still has another year on his deal, Chris Latang, right? Um, they'll kind of look at those guys. And, and start to form the basis of the roster. But I do think a Jake Gensel or a Brian Rust, a, one of those second tier of big names, right, is going to be moved. Maybe a lot like, you know, when Jim Rutherford came to town and it was James Neal coming off of a 40-goal season and he was traded for Patrick Hornquist. I think it'll be a move like that. I don't think you'll see any of the big three move. 
Um, but I think anyone else, I think Jake Gensel is a high prior or is a, you know, is going to be dangled out there and see what you can get for him uh, in the prime of his career, controlled with his contract and an affordable cap hit. Brian Rust as well, too, a guy that, like I said, um, Sean Couturier, Nathan McKinnon, Brian Rust to me, those are the three best bargain contracts for their production in the NHL. I think you could get a, a nice return for Brian Rust as well, too. And, and those are the type of moves, Mark. You know, if you want to win championships, sometimes you got to depart with a 40-goal scorer like James Neal to, to bring a, a, a different piece back. That's the type of move I think Hextall and Burke will be, will be looking for this summer. If the team crashes and burns next year, if they miss the playoffs, if they're one and done in the playoffs or in the postseason again, hey, all of a sudden Latang's off the books, Malkin's off the books. You've got all kinds of money. You can really start to look towards the future. But I do think kind of the onus for this season will be, hey, we owe it to these guys to give them one more shot. And it will be interesting. I mean, I was skeptical about the Carter move at 38. I mean, I don't know. I don't think he can produce for an entire year like he did in a short time span at the end of the year and in the postseason for the Penguins. Uh, you know, I'm glad to have him back for another year because he can be a key contributor next year at 39. So I, it's really going to be an interesting offseason. We've heard the speculation, you know, they're not going to make a change at coach. They're going to keep kind of everything in place. I, I probably think, you know, you're right on with the fact that they're going to give him one more run, maybe try to infuse yeah. something into this team with a trade. Yeah. Uh, I would not like to see Gensel go, but if you have to make a move like that to bring a couple young pieces back, you got to do it. Uh, absolutely. You, you can't be complacent, right? And and that's the thing. I think they are going to give these guys one more run at it, but you gotta you got to do some tweaking around that, right? It, if it's a Gensel, if it's a Rust, if it's maybe something on the back end, you know, you got to feel confident in POJ. Maybe you move someone on the back end. Poulin, who, like you mentioned, the Pens don't have a ton in their system, but Poulin is a guy who's a bigger body guy who can score, who's maybe um, that nasty type role can help fill some of that quota while being on his rookie contract really cheap and a young guy to kind of you know breathe that life into the dressing room there are some things that they can do there organically and, and again you're right they don't have a ton in the farm system but they do have a couple nice pieces POJ and Poulin who are who are seemingly ready to play right now that gives you more options for what you can do with some of these other guys if you think those guys are ready to play real minutes next year so that's what Wes. I think Mark I think it's you, you use the word it's, it's tweaks um, it looks similar but maybe with one or two substantial changes we got to run west. Thank you as always. Take it easy, Mark. Wow, I was waiting for a Go Mountaineers and I didn't get one. West go Euler, Mountaineers. ESPN Radio. <laughs> there we go. ESPN Radio 970 out of Pittsburgh. Our Pittsburgh Penguins insider uh, chiming in to join us. We will wrap things up right after this here on By All Means on Western Reserve Radio, brought to you by Big thank you to the Hall of Fame hockey announcer, Doc Emmerich, who joined us in the opening segment, and our Pittsburgh Penguins insider, Wes Euler from ESPN Radio 970 in Pittsburgh. Coming up on next week's show, filling in for Brian Tonar next week, will be the recreation manager from Mill Creek Metro Parks. We'll talk to Chris Bundy. And then if you listen to Brian Snow's show over on Western Reserve Radio 2 every morning, Monday through Friday, we'll have the snowman on the phone 
from the Carolinas to talk about his show, the changes to that, and of course, I'll let you know when you can hear it here on Western Reserve Radio over there on Western Reserve Radio 2. This show is available in the podcast form. Just search for By All Means on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, and many of your favorite places to listen to podcasts, or follow me on Twitter at Mark underscore Means, and we will have today's show up for you here within the next couple of hours if you missed our interview with Doc Emmerich. Again, thank you to executive producer and uh, my co-host Dave Ferris, owner-operator Jim Craven. My name is Mark Means. You've been listening to, by all means, right here on Western Reserve Radio. Until next week, have a great night, everyone.